News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the Friday before the holiday weekend. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn, here with Christina Greer on a phone in Long Island. Hello. Hello, Harry Siegel. Hey. And Alex Lynn on the Zoom in Manhattan. How are you doing? Pretty good. You know, living life. I never thought we'd make it to Labor Day having uh, some of these constraints that we have. Labor Day seemed like an eternity away in April, and now here we are. Really, really. We're going to have, speaking of those constraints, Medina Torre from Politico joining us in a bit to talk about the public schools mess we're in, how we got here, and what's coming. And before that, I think we're going to talk protests for a bit. I saw Dermot Shea, the police commissioner, on Friday explaining that the uh, Black Ford Taurus caught on camera driving through a uh, protest crowd in Midtown Manhattan in Times Square. Uh, saying, hey, maybe that wasn't a crime. He's not sure. Nobody's come in to complain. It was all very complicated, which is just, you know, one more leak in the NYPD's increasingly leaky bucket of credibility, I think. And Alex, you've been around the protests a good deal this week. What have you been seeing here? Well, the protest in Times Square last night was kind of extra charged because of everything that's going on in Rochester right now. And a car that, through a series of people collecting video and, as called on Twitter, internet sleuths, it was pieced together where this car came from. The car itself, the Ford Taurus that plowed through protesters, was holding Trump supporters in it and seemed to have a police detail kind of protecting the counter-protesters that were getting in and out of the car. I know that in Shea's telling, they were directing the car to get out of there, and they told it to go on the route that it went on, and then, holy smokes, they weren't expecting protesters there. As fate would have it, they, the protesters, move in that direction, and then the car takes off. So Shea, in the course of saying, this maybe isn't a crime, he's not sure, says remarkably that the, once it got past the crowd, it sped off very dangerously as it hits a block or two after it goes up and makes a right. We're really lucky it didn't collide with other cars. It's hard for me to imagine a parallel circumstance with, say, a group of police officers where you're putting thumbs on the scale to find ways where that's not a police concern. And we saw Gwen Hogan there. She had a lot of video that she was putting out on social media. Um, she's an FAQ favorite. Jake from Gothamist. So both of them were reporting out this story. And what's interesting is that a lot of people that have been following this protest, a lot of press, are very, very present in these protests. Now, I had an unpleasant experience about a week and a half back where I saw a uh, protest the same day of the Million Man March, and I walked with them for a time took some photos, recorded some sound for this episode or for any other episode, just 
trying to get the vibe of the street, being a New Yorker, uh, involved in a podcast about New York. And I was told by one of the organizers, well, first I was asked who I was with. And I said, well, I'm not technically with anyone, but I'm press. I, uh, my name is Alex Lynn. I produce FAQ NYC. And I was told by one of the organizers that only sanctioned press were allowed to walk with the protesters. And it's a small point and it's very annoying, but it's one that's increasingly important as protesters will point to facial recognition and other secret and covert that are becoming not so secret NYPD tactics in order to identify and harass protesters. Uh, We saw it with the gentleman from Warriors in the Garden and how without a warrant, police sort of surrounded his house. However, the protesters that were organizing quickly uh, kind of organized around me to separate me from the crowd and then told me that only sanctioned press were allowed to walk in the street. To which I responded, you know, with all due respect, which everything that follows that is generally not with due respect, but I did mean it, that, you know, in 2014, press didn't really let the cops push them out of the street. 2016, press made sure that they were following counter-protesters as well as protesters in New York City. And no matter what happens, the protesters protesting police brutality ought not tell press where they should and shouldn't be. A lot of protesters point to facial recognition and some of these technologies. But on the other podcasts that I helped to launch, Surveillance and the City, we talk about things like geofence warrants. And so you have crowds of people not covering their faces, posting on social media, not covering their faces or tattoos, kind of like solely looking at the journalists taking cell phone photos for local press as the source of, you know, law enforcement fodder. And I just don't think that that's necessarily the case. And I also think it's losing the protesters a lot of credibility in the street. Well, I'm just so, I'm just so worried and exhausted, honestly, just because thinking about you talking to law enforcement and this lack of I would say respect that there seems to be for media personnel uh, is transferring into like this symbiotic relationship that law enforcement has towards media and protesters. And I think my real concern is it's getting more aggressive and polarizing as we get closer to election day. And in New York, most people think New York is some, you know, liberal bastion, which we all know it is not, especially when it comes to the NYPD. Which makes me honestly think about, you know, these questions like, can this, can this department ever be reformed? If they're going to look at members of the press as now enemies, I don't see, I don't really see a path forward, especially with someone like Shea at the head. Well, the problem is that some of the protesters are now looking at the journalists also as enemies. And that's a strange place in which protesters and cops meet, both wanting to control what press are actually allowed in the protests. And it's a very strange and odd place for the press to be in at the moment. I think what's also interesting, Alex, about this distrust of the press from protesters is that so many protesters are reading accounts of what's going on around the country in various cities and suburbs and recognizing that far too many members of the press have no real understanding of race, racism, or what the uprisings really mean. So there's this inaccurate portrayal in many ways in certain instances by members of the press who just honestly don't understand the root causes of the uprisings and the protests 
in general? I got to agree entirely and disagree entirely. Before we switch to education, Medina has just joined us on Zoom. Hello. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I just, speaking as press, I don't trust police, protesters, or anyone else to sort of pre-license or sanction what I'm doing. And have always been cranky about that. And going back to previous protests in New York and really with Occupy, I've just found that whole set of credentialing infuriating, particularly on the police side, where they control the uh, press passes and aren't always thrilled about that, but also aren't always helpful in giving them out and have occasionally also going back to Occupy and use those specifically to target reporters, uh, to push them out of scenes and to deal with them aggressively. But the main thing with covering any protest is it's always chaotic. It always seems like what's happening right around you is super intense and the most, uh, important thing in the world, and sometimes it is, but the idea that anyone else there can say, this isn't for you to see or to cover, it's just very hard to do that when you're, you're in a public space. And my response to anyone, whether they have a badge or a mask or anything else who, who tells me to do that is generally a, a less polite version of fuck off. That said, reporters screw these stories up all the time. I just don't think that there's any, uh, there's any fix to that involving sanctioning. Uh, I agree. And I will say, as a message to young protesters, anarchists, everyone, if you don't want to be seen, cover your face, cover your tattoos. You're in New York City. You're going to walk through an intersection here. Get, get smart about it. This isn't the press's cell phone photos on the cover of Gothamist. It's identifying you. It's your social media. So take that for what you will. It's free advice. So one group that is no longer in the streets as of next week is public school teachers. Smooth transition. Ooh, la, la. I actually just got a text from my school teacher friend saying uh, <clears throat> this is the first day she has received her curriculum for the start of the school year. She had no idea what she was teaching or what she was expected to teach or the curriculum up until today. So that was fortuitous. Hello again, Medina. Thanks so much for uh, joining us. You had uh, this terrific piece uh, you, uh, you co-wrote at Politico, How New York City's Schools Plan Fell Short. Before we jump in, I'm hoping you can take us through the answer to that question, since it's on pretty much every parent and every teacher's mind these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, th thank you so much for having me, I guess, just to kind of explain uh, how we got here. So these, these past couple of weeks, the mayor has been facing increasing calls across the board from principals, from teachers, from union leaders and elected officials to delay the reopening of schools. And a lot of people were concerned about the city's ability to ensure that schools have sufficient personal protective equipment, sufficient staffing to accommodate for the blended learning and remote, fully remote learning, all the resources that are needed to make schools safe amid the pandemic. And uh, the mayor had been resisting for a while. I think his, his argument has really been centered on the need to have people in person, that in-person schooling is the best option, especially for students who are in vulnerable populations like students with disabilities, English language learners, students in temporary housing. So he kept persisting with that. 
even as uh, it got, got to the point where principals were even coming out publicly saying this needs to be delayed. The city's principals union came out, called for a delay as well. You know, they had concerns about nurses. I think the city said that they were going to ensure all schools had nurses. The teachers union followed. And then there was this tension with the union. The union was um, potentially voting to um, authorize a strike. The teachers union, yeah. UFT. Yes, the United Federation of Teachers. And then, of course, the teachers, the principals, uh, families, everyone was was concerned. And so finally, um, as the teachers union was set to make a decision, an agreement came about and the city announced that it was going to delay the reopening of schools from September 10th to September 21st. So teachers are going to start blended learning training on September 8th, and then there's going to be a transition to all remote learning on the 16th, and then students are going to report in person on the 21st. And so this was essentially an about-face on the part of the mayor, who was just repeatedly resisting calls to delay the reopening, only to end up heeding those calls. And so a lot of people have pointed to this pattern of the mayor just kind of resisting calls to do something and then eventually doing it at the last minute. And then people are kind of like, okay, well, why couldn't you have done it in the first place? And this was kind of what happened with the closing of, of the school system where the city and the state kind of dragged their feet there. Um, they were kind of saying, well, similar argument, in-person schooling is best. We're concerned about families and, and students who rely on schools for certain services. But um, eventually they ended up buckling there too. So that's sort of where we are now. And the HVAC systems and ventilation systems just started being checked, what, like a week and a half ago, was it? Um, so, yeah. So there's um, definitely a lot happening on that front as well. There have been a lot of concerns about school buildings and uh, ventilation. And the city said yesterday that inspections should be done by the end of the day. And normally they should be um, releasing reports today. So we'll see what ends up happening on, on that front. But I think as, as recently as two days ago, they said that 1,321 buildings had been inspected. And then I, I think yesterday the mayor was saying that, or maybe it was the day before, it was saying that there were some buildings that had some problems that needed to be resolved and that delaying the reopening would help them resolve that. So that remains to be seen um, whether that will be come out today and, and what the status of, of ventilation will be in the schools. Hi, Medina. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I had a question about the ventilation systems in these schools because so many public schools and charter schools are co-located. Is there a difference in the arguments that we're hearing from charter school heads versus public school uh, principals? Right. Well, I um, actually, it's interesting that you bring that up because um, Success Academy had actually announced yesterday that they were going to continue remote learning through December. And they had pointed to building uh, readiness as a, one of the main issues or concerns around going back to school in person. And, and they, they had mentioned some challenges that they were facing with the city in terms of uh, regulations and having buildings ready. So it seems like there may be an issue on that front. So that's what I know. What were the mayor and the chancellor doing in like the basically 180 days between when schools closed and when they were supposed to reopen? Because I just keep hearing from principals that they were sort of left, hey, you've got to figure this out without a ton of guidance. And their union, which is generally much quieter and less political, you know, as you were saying, spoke up. And we're seeing all of these questions now, like who's going to be teaching remotely and how's that going to work and sync with the teachers in classrooms that seem like things that 
the system would have been dealing with in March when, when we had this abrupt shutdown and the hope of reopening on time in September. Like, was this a wasted stretch or, or what was happening, uh, you know, as you were reporting out on the system over those months? Yeah, I mean, I think there was definitely a lot of drama and conflict, even like maybe a few months ago when the mayor and the chancellor first unveiled their school reopening plan, the blended learning approach. The teachers union head, Michael Mulgrew, was saying that he was claiming that uh, the city was preventing the DOE from negotiating or involving itself in discussions around school reopening and that City Hall essentially came to the table late. City Hall, of course, denied that. And so there was kind of a, there was an implication that the city was was sort of dragging its feet and coming late to the table as far as engaging in school reopening conversations. And there ended up being sort of a whole, there ended up being some some disagreements as well. Like the, the unions were, you know, negotiating at the table with the city, but they were continuing to say, like they they would kind of roll out safety standards and other measures, but they would say that the city wasn't listening to their demands, things like that. And so it seemed like there was a feeling that the city was getting started on planning and preparations late. And I think with the the principals, um, I've been hearing that, you know, they're, they're constantly being told that guidance is forthcoming and that there's just been a big pressure and weight on them. And that's kind of what built up to all the principals kind of coming out and, and speaking out against opening on September 10th. The city's principals union had sending a letter about that as well. The teachers union joining in there. So there was definitely, I think there was definitely a sense across the board. People did not have confidence or faith that the city would be prepared to open on September 10th, particularly because of what happened in the spring when it was time to close the schools. And also in terms of remote learning, I think and that that's a big piece of this as well. Um, you know, there was a feeling that remote learning didn't work or that a, a lot of families, especially vulnerable or low-income families, really struggled through that and that it wasn't clear how the city was improving. And it still isn't clear to people how the city is improving remote learning, even though the city says that it has been working on ironing out the kinks in the spring and the summer. The the head of the city's principals union actually was on WNYC recently kind of talking about where things are now and was basically saying that they need to figure out how to address the staffing and safety issues between now and the 21st. And then that's, that's going to be a tall task for the city. One question I had about some of those staffing issues is that it just seemed like a very muddled plan where you had the same teacher uh, teaching two different groups that came in at two different times, seemingly to separate them. Wouldn't they be conduits for the for COVID, uh, questions about that, nurses in schools. How are principals sourcing the PPE? Did the city finally uh, make a better workflow for that? Because I know that was a big concern, like principals having to source these like huge amount of you know health resources that they've never been responsible for before. Right, right. Yeah, and those are those are actually still all all outstanding questions. I mean, I know the mayor was asked recently about staffing. And, and how many staff will be needed. And he didn't give like an exact number, but he was saying thousands and thousands. And, you know, the city has been talking about DOE employees who aren't in the classroom, but are qualified to teach. Um, so I think they're trying to, to look in other spaces and avenues to find more staff. But still, I think people are concerned that there won't be enough. And as you said, there's going to be different cohorts, different groups of students, um, students who are doing blended learning, who are going to be remote part of the week, in person, the other part of the week, families whose kids are going to be fully remote. And even in terms of the safety measures, I know they've spoken about 30 days worth of PPE, but there, there is still concern across the board that 
um, these these issues aren't going to be met. And I think to add also, um, even within the teachers union, there are some factions that have been expressing their opposition to the way that the union leadership has been handling negotiations like more UFT. They've they've recently ruled out some demands around, you know, having localized infection rate thresholds because different areas have been hit differently by COVID. I think there's still questions about the the mandatory testing. They're talking about testing people randomly every month. It's still a little bit vague. We're still waiting for some more details. So I think there is definitely a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not all these things will be met by the time um, September 21st rolls around. So the thing I've been trying to wrap my head around, which touches a lot of these logistics is it took a long time to get to a bus announcement. And there's all sorts of fun politics stuff around buses and de Blasio. But putting that aside, there are no buses this year except for District 75 students who often have significantly more needs. Some of the students who struggled with remote learning, who aren't always having access to computers or to adults who can work from home and to be around, they really need this system. A lot of other parents don't. De Blasio for a long time was promoting the survey where 400,000 parents sort of said they were going to have their kids in school. The city set things up so that whether or not you said your kid was going to actually be going to school the two days was basically a dummy test because you have to wait every quarter to put them in, but you can withdraw them at any time. So the only way you say they're not going to be in is you're a very decent person who's left New York and knows this already, uh, or you're a dummy, respectfully. So I'm worried that the backdrop for the last few years before the coronavirus in a lot of ways had been the SHSATs. Carranza had focused on those and what a uh, inequitable system that was and how these elite high schools didn't reflect the larger city. But one of the weird benefits of that, arguably, and that's an, it's its own set of questions, right, is that there is broader buy-in to the public school system, and it hasn't functioned like it does in many other cities as a system of last resort. And we're about to see, as these schools open, who actually sends their kids back, who maintains them there, how many teachers are needed and where they're needed. Is there a chance that New York City's public school system is going to be smaller, poorer, and serving a different cohort than it had previously in the midst of this? And obviously, while we're going to be billions of dollars short because of the economic damage the virus has done and that no aid is coming from Washington. So that's the big thing I'm thinking about. I'd love to hear your thoughts on all that. Yeah, no, that's definitely... um you know, I think those are all, that's definitely a very important question. And just to make sure I understood it correctly. So you're wondering if um, the school system is going to, to struggle more um, now because of the pandemic than it has before? I'm wondering if it's going to be composed differently in terms of who's actually sending their kids into physical schools based on the sort of work they do, their income and resources and all that. And consequently, where teachers are needed how much sort of broader buy-in into the public system there is, all of that, because it seems like a, a much more open question than I can ever remember it being in New York. Yeah, no, I mean, I think if, if anything, broadly speaking, the, the pandemic has really exacerbated um, some of the, the inequities that were already present in the school system. And I think the, the uh, students that have really been hit the hardest um, by this are students who struggle in normal times. So, you know, 
low-income students, students with disabilities, English language learners, students in temporary housing. It's it, it's it's harder for them to to learn and to get their services under remote, remote learning. So I think, I mean, in terms of of the fall, what we're going to see, I think the big question is going to be how how it's going to affect their learning and their academics. I mean, I think that a lot of these students need in-person learning. I think a lot of these families that are in these vulnerable categories are going to likely prefer to do blended learning um, because they need to be in person and have those services and because they might not be able to afford the childcare. Um, but I think that even under blended learning, the students are going to be partly under remote learning. And so there is a possibility that students who may have struggled in normal times may struggle more in terms of their academics because they're learning remotely, partially. And even when the city unveiled their grading policy, there were some concerns that the grading policy for the pandemic was a little too um, stringent or a little tough for families whose students are in vulnerable categories. I do think also that a, a lot of the things you mentioned, like segregation in the city's public school system, the big fight over the specialized high school admissions test and how to increase the number of Black and Latino students who are admitted to the schools, those questions are coming to the surface. And some people are saying, well, the pandemic may be an opportunity to once again revisit some of these policies. There's been a lot of conversations about schools that screen for students and how that uh, affects who, who does and doesn't get in. You know, people have, have been saying that the pandemic is showing even more the, the impact of these um, policies that are said to be discriminatory. So I think it'll be interesting to see how the DOE responds in, in that fashion as well. Professor Greer, do you want to jump in here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in the aftermath of any crisis, there's always an opportunity to reimagine. Uh, what a system or an institution could look like. And I think that the New York City public school system is ripe for us rethinking that, especially since I've talked to some principals where 50% or fewer of their students have internet access at home. They're trying to do print packets, but many of the Black and Latino children who are in the public school system have family members and parents who are, are essential workers. So they're trying to figure out how to educate their children, but also stay healthy and provide New Yorkers with great services whether it's the hospital or restaurants or whatever it may be. But something that struck me, Medina, and I wanted to know in the reporting that you've done and that all the people you've spoken to, one of my students brought this up yesterday. He has a, a sibling uh, who has special needs, and he's really worried about the sort of gaps in his sibling's knowledge that have occurred since March, and his family is really struggling to give him uh, the education that he deserves. Uh, but it's it's literally not possible. Like he needs a certified educator who knows how to to tap into his own level of brilliance. But it it takes a certain type of educator who who works on special needs students. So what have either Carranza or De Blasio have they said anything specifically and explicitly about students who are differently abled mentally and physically in some of their plans that they're putting together? Right. Well, essentially what they've said, I mean, there hasn't been a trend, tremendous amount of details, but what they have been saying is that they were going to prioritize um, students with disabilities and English language learners and other students who are a bit more vulnerable for in-person learning um, so that they can receive the services that they, they need. But I, I, I'm still finding that 
a, a lot of those families are say, saying that they don't feel like they've received enough information about how their children will get their services. And I think a lot of those families are also going for blended learning because they want to have the option to send their kids to school so they can receive their services. So that's as far as what the city has communicated on that. So what should parents who have children who are differently abled and need additional assistance, what should they expect from de Blasio Carranza in the upcoming weeks? Or are they just as in the dark as every other parent in New York City? Yeah, I mean, my sense is that they are in the dark as well. From what I've been hearing, families who, and I know, Alex, you asked this question before, uh, District 75 is for uh, students who have uh, significant uh, or substantial disabilities, like significant cognitive delays or autism spectrum disorders. What I've been hearing across the board is that they haven't really received as many specifics or guidance uh, with respect to how the city is going to be um, addressing their needs, just that they're prioritizing them for in-person learning and services. I think uh, I, my understanding is the city has some additional guidance forthcoming on that. So that's as far as what I've been hearing. My old high school is called City As High School, and, you know, they used a model that was very uncommon, and they used the city as a school. And I wonder what alternative schools like that are going to be doing in the fall. It almost seems like they're more prepared for something like this because they were already set up for an, a kind of remote learning where they would send kids into gardens for their science credit and a bunch of things in that nature, just sort of thinking outside of the box, so to speak. And that seems to be something that from what I understand, the principals were trying to get at as well, as far as like trying to get outside classes and just a little more wiggle room on defining what traditional learning was. I'm just curious what you've heard on that front, as far as like the, the room that principals and teachers have. Just in terms of like space and physical capacity and, and what, what's been communicated on that. Yeah. So it's interesting enough, the Independent Budget Office actually came out with a report about how 70% of schools will be able to use the general classroom space when the students return for in-person learning. Um, I know they mentioned that there might be some more space if schools use non-traditional spaces like gyms and cafeterias. So that's really what's what I've been hearing as far as the space concern is. Dina, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. Last question for you here is what should people be looking for as schools reopen and as they're trying to assess the year? And this is political writers maybe who are looking at the labor issues and that set of questions and how those affect the mayor, parents who are trying to figure out decisions that would have to last for months and teachers. But we, we went through this period of drama. Have we reached some sort of resolution now? Or is that still just entirely up in the air in this very unpredictable year? Yeah, I, I don't know if we entirely achieved a resolution yet. I mean, I think even though the city agreed to the delay, there are people who are still saying that September 21st isn't it. It's, it's still not enough time or like a, an extra 11 days. It's not enough to address all of these issues. I think the big question is the staffing and whether or not the city is going to be able to fulfill that need. And it's not just finding the staff, but it's also paying them with all of these budget cuts, right? 
Um, and then, you know, there's obviously the ventilation, the status of, of school buildings. And according to the mayor, there's a handful of buildings that still have some problems. Are those problems going to be resolved by the 21st? Even though the city has promised that they're going to have nurses in every school building uh, and that the, the city's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene is going to help with that. Um, how is that going to be paid for? Is that actually going to happen? I keep hearing no from, from nurses I know who work in the system. And I think, again, it comes back to what went down during remote learning and in the spring of, with respect to how the city handled the closing of schools. There's there's not a lot of confidence. And the testing is another big one. Um, I think in, in March, one frustration was that at some point the city stopped publicly confirming positive coronavirus cases in schools. They were telling principals to voluntarily uh, inform uh, families. Um, so that, that that's a big concern, you know, uh, the fact that the city stopped publicly confirming cases, are, are families going to be informed? This mandatory testing, are people actually going to get tested? We're talking about randomly testing some people every month. Christina rightly asked questions about students with disabilities. You know, there, there are a lot of questions there about how the services are going to play out when schools reopen. Um, well, we're hearing that they're going to be prioritized for in-person learning, but what else will be happening? I know some English language learner and immigrant families also feel like they're not getting a lot of information. So there are a lot of a lot of question marks. I think it remains to be seen whether all these things will be resolved by the 21st. Oh, boy. <laughs> Medina, seriously, thank you so much for uh, for coming on and taking the time. It's, it's much appreciated. This is a weird year. Thank you for having me. F FAQ. FAQ is headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. It is brought to you by Racket Media. We are mixed and mastered by Adam Kamara. And we want you to look out for a few things coming up. One, on the FAQ NYC website, we're going to start collaborating with Victoria Bekempis and her wonderful newsletter about everything that's going on in the New York courts called Allegedly. So every Sunday night, we're going to do this little kind of like quick sum up of what has been going on that week in the New York courts. Please look out for that. Also, please check out the uh, new Brickhouse Cooperative, including FAQ NYC and eight other wolfproof media companies. It's on Kickstarter right now, and we'd love to have your support. 